Hello and welcome to the Ties Fundamental Value Podcast. Today I'm joined by Mauricio, uh, co-founder and chief strategy officer of Ledin. Uh, before we get started, nothing that we are saying in this podcast is investment advice. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. Mauricio, it's so great to have you on today. Thanks, Josh. It's a real pleasure to be here. And so you grew up in Venezuela. Can you tell us, you know, in the crypto community, we always love to talk about inflation and 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 we, we love to use the example of Venezuela, but it's great to have somebody on that actually grew up in Venezuela. So can you tell us a bit about what your life was like growing up in Venezuela uh, under communism and how did your life and, and kind of the political state of Venezuela uh, change throughout your childhood? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, to give people perhaps a bit of background. So communism, uh, I was born in, in 1985, so uh, in mid, mid 80s, and communism came into Venezuela in 99. So uh, that, that's when Chavez came into Venezuela uh, or you know, earned the presidency or, or uh, voted into presidents. The, uh, growing up, Venezuela was always a very volatile economy. Uh, it's, it's very much an oil economy. So it was, it was very attached to the, the boom-bust cycles of oil prices. And um, growing up, I remember like in the early 90s, uh, just through the 90s, there was a, a bit of an economic boom in the background. However, even though there was this perceived great economic progress, there was always a lot of inequality in Venezuela. Uh, and this was even before communism came in. I think this largely uh, you know, made communism happen in Venezuela was the fact that there was a lot of uh, inequality around how wealth was distributed. And um, when... When essentially, uh, well, maybe to step back for a second, in that context, even before Chavez became president, there was always inflation in Venezuela. So as a, growing up in Venezuela, inflation is a part of your life, uh, regardless of uh, communism just made it a lot worse. But when you were growing up, I remember thinking, like, just to give you a funny anecdote about how it is to like grow up in inflation. Uh, people that I grew up with around my circles, when, I, when we were like reaching our teenage years, some of these, uh, some of my friends or like older friends that I had were buying cars and started to buy their first cars. And one thing that I thought was fascinating, because at this time I had already spent uh, a couple of years of high school in Florida and I had come back to Venezuela. But what I found fascinating was that my friends in Venezuela were saying that but Venezuela was this amazing economy because you could buy a car for, say, two million bolivares drive it for two years, and then sell it after two years for 4 million bolivares. So, so they thought in their minds that they were essentially like making money, but in fact, they, they weren't at all. And so to me growing up, this concept always fascinated me, just the, the value of things. And I remember in the, you know, at lunch, I would hear my dad, because my dad was an entrepreneur, and he would often talk about like millions of bolivares and millions of bolivares. And I was like, oh my God, like this is just such large amounts of bolivares. And in my mind, I was just always trying to understand why this happened. And the other piece that was very difficult for me to understand as a child growing up in Venezuela was how does a government that does not charge any taxes sustain an economy? because nobody paid taxes in Venezuela and the government didn't collect them and they seemingly subsidized everything. And so I, I had a very hard time understanding where 
they got the money to do this. And so that led me to become very much obsessed about understanding money and how it worked. And that's how I wound up at business school. Uh, and shortly after that was a bit of what, what made me so in love immediately with Bitcoin. But I'll pause because I've, I've talked about a few things. Yeah. And so you mentioned earlier that you went to Florida. So when did you initially leave Venezuela? Why did you decide to come back? You mentioned you came back. And why did you eventually decide to, uh, to, to go to Canada? Yeah, those are great questions. So uh, when we went to Florida, it, it was, it was I wouldn't say it was uh, like everybody was doing it, but it was somewhat common when communism came into the country for families to say, okay, let's try to spend, you know, Chavez's first presidential period because we're sure that's only the only thing he'll get. Let's go spend it out in, you know, in the U.S. or in some modern developed economy so that our kids can get a great education and then we can come back when communism is gone. And so that was kind of the general idea around what a lot of people thought to do. So we went to Florida. We, we spent a few years uh, living in Miami with a bunch of other Venezuelans that had, were doing similar things. Uh, but essentially, two years into Chavez, he was only getting bigger. He was only digging his heels further down. Businesses were really starting to suffer. So we ended up actually having to come back because my dad, essentially, my dad's business needed him back. And we, we didn't want to stay basically in Florida alone. Uh, so we went back to Venezuela and when we, when we had to go back, I, I knew after having spent those two years in Florida that I, I really wanted to do my university outside of Venezuela. That was like, I, I had decided that. So when I went back to Venezuela after those two years, I finished high school there, uh, grade 11 at the time. And I essentially, uh, wanted to come back out. So my dad, uh, I had some relatives in, in Canada. I didn't have any relatives in Florida. And so my dad said, you have some people in, in Canada. Why don't you go check Toronto out? And I actually came to Toronto with a, with a suitcase that was a week-long suitcase. And as I was here to like come research the universities, there was, uh, I forget exactly what event was, but there was like a coup. So like military went on the streets of Venezuela as I was in the middle of my trip. And my dad essentially said, whatever you have to do, you stay in Canada. Like, do not come back. Like, this, just don't come back. And I had just finished the rounds in the universities in Canada. Uh, it was the double cohort year. So in Canada, they graduated grade 12 and 13 at that year. So it was very hard to get a university spot because there were two, twice as many people studying or, or asking for the spot. So I was like a little bit upset about the whole situation. I just didn't really want to like be forced to stay. And so I was kind of like decided that I didn't want to stay. And the very next morning, the people, the, the relative that I was staying with made a list of high schools that I should go visit because the universities wouldn't take me because I was graduating in grade 11. Anyway, it's too much of a tangent. But when I decided that I wouldn't, I wasn't going to research these universities, very much like in a movie, I remember crumpling this little paper ball and throwing it out the window. And then I went out the window and this building across from where I was staying said high school. <laughs> and I was like, okay, across the street, I ended up enrolling in that high school, finishing the year and going to Western to do my university. Uh, that's where I met Adam, uh, my best friend and co-founder of Ledin. And so after graduating uh, from Western, what was the initial work experience that you had and how did you end up falling down the crypto rabbit hole? Yeah, good question. So when I finished at Western, I um, first I took a job with my um, 
my uh, relative in Canada worked at a, a very successful condominium developer in Toronto. So I, I joined that company to run sales and marketing. Uh, and essentially, I uh, worked there for about a year and a half. And then my dad, uh, who had a few projects, or he was an entrepreneur in Venezuela, he had a few opportunities. So he was asking me to support him uh, in, in a few projects down there. I went, worked with him for about, I worked with him for about, I'd say it was six months before I went back and I, I came back to do my MBA uh, at uh, Ivy Business School in Canada. From there, I, um, I went back to the real estate project in, in Toronto, continued to do sales and marketing work for a high-rise developer. And then my dad pulled me back for an energy project that he had in, in Venezuela. It, it was a very significant energy project. And he asked me to sort of essentially lead the project. And uh, I, I, I thought it was an excellent opportunity. So I flew down and I uh, worked with him to install those power barges for two years. So we, it was a very big project. We managed about uh, you know, 250 people on the site. And uh, we got them all installed. But after that project was done, um, I came back to Canada. And that was right around the time when essentially... Uh, once that project was finished, I said, okay, I've done my part. You know, I, I, this project went really, really well. I'm going to go back to Canada uh, because I don't, I don't like where this country's headed. And shortly after, uh, funny enough, uh, Chavez, has died. Uh, Chavez dies. So this was in around 2013. And when Chavez dies, this was just around the time my youngest brother was graduating university. And what we had done in my family when all of us graduated university was my dad would help us uh, start a venture if we wanted. And so he would write the sort of seed check and the two brothers I have, we were all we're three brothers combined. So the two brothers would do the sort of diligence. And then if everybody was in agreement, he would give us a little seed check. And so I had done it. My middle brother had done it. And it was my youngest brother's turn, but he had a much more challenging country situation to deal with. Uh, he didn't want to leave the country. And essentially, we, I was very much pushing him to leave. He didn't want to. And he proposed these business opportunities. So among, among the business ideas that he proposes is mining, mining Bitcoin. And this is in 2014. And when my dad sends me his sort of idea, I, said, I started reading about Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining, what it was. I understood that it required a lot of power, like energy. And I understood that that was very heavily subsidized in Venezuela. So that's when my, my brother, basically we said yes. My brother bought his first machines. And then when we flew back down, uh, that, that was in, I believe that was like early in 2014, when we flew back down in like Christmas of that year or six months later that year, he had doubled the machines. And he was essentially like the, the only person in Venezuela with a smile. And so... That's when I, so when he buys the machines, I, I left back to Canada and I came back. When I returned, he had twice as many machines. So I thought. So how, how did he end up getting access to those machines? Because we had, uh, you know, we just, did, we just did an episode more recently with Mike Collier and uh, who's the, the CEO of DCG Foundry. And one of the things that he talked about now, at least, is just how impossible it is to get machines because wafer production in Asia is is down so significantly so was it a lot easier back then and and how 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 difficult or easy was it to actually get 
machines into Venezuela. Is there were there any sorts of restrictions on that? Could you just order them online? How did that work? Yeah. So anyone that you know was probably mining around the time will tell you that it was either you know there were very few options. The main one being Bitmain. So Bitmain was essentially how you got any ASICs uh, at the time. And I remember it being very scary because none of us had ever dealt with Bitmain. None of us had ever heard of these you know mining computers and you had to actually send them the payment months and months in advance of getting the machines. I think it was like four to six months before you got the and that's machines. And still, that's still the case now. And in some cases, it's even longer. Yeah. No, it hasn't got better for sure. But back then, nobody knew Bitmain. You were getting a, a, a computer shipped from China to Venezuela, a computer that you had never installed, that you had never really set up the work to, to kind of generate this Bitcoin. So, yeah, so how did your how did your brother even start? How did he get his hands on that? When, when you decided mining was the opportunity, how did he get his hands on his, the first piece of mining equipment? I mean, where did that come from? Did he say, I want to mine and then sit on, you know, I'm going to sit on my ass for six months while I wait for mining equipment to ship? Or did he find something secondary? How did he even get started? So yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So the, it, initially he got his, hit the idea from a friend of his who was actually living in Houston at the time. And he had said, the, the, the way my brother found out, found out about it is this, his friend in Houston had said, I want to mine. There's a, a subsidy in Venezuela. I don't have a subsidy here. I'm going to basically buy, instead of buying five, I'll buy 10 machines so that I'll pay you five machines in exchange of you hosting them for me. So it was like a bit of a joint venture with someone else. Now, the person in Houston didn't end up following through. They, they didn't end up buying the machines, but, they, but my brother had essentially by now figured out where he was going to buy them. So he had basically kind of sorted out how to do it. And even though his friend didn't want to do it no longer, he, he basically still wanted to do it himself. And so he went and bought the machines and sent the money to Bitmain. And then essentially, we had to wait for the machines to arrive to Venezuela. They arrived. He, it took him a while to kind of figure it out and set them up. Uh, there's a lot of electrical work that has to be done to set up miners, especially ASICs. People don't quite often take it to, take that into account, but there's like there's a lot that goes into uh, an ASIC facility. And um, essentially, once he he sort of he figured this out, the machines started humming and they started sending him Bitcoin. And essentially, he with Bitcoin started rallying pretty dramatically at the time he started doing pretty well and he was he became very much obsessed about continuing to grow his minds so did many other venezuelans because venezuelans were now venezuelans had never seen an asset appreciate in dollar terms like that that had never happened like in most emerging markets the dollar is the top of the mountain like you, you can't, you don't own access to equity. You can't buy Tesla stock. You can't buy real estate. Those things are ludicrous. Uh, so when they saw something that acted like a stock that appreciated in dollar terms, like light bulbs. And so, just and so why they just, there was no way to get exposure to stocks or it was just thing they were uncomfortable with or. So uh, if you're Venezuelan and you go to your bank and you tell them that you want to buy us equities, they'll tell you to get lost. Like there's no way for you to do that. Uh, there, there, there's no way for the average Venezuelan to get access to any equities. So and so and so, how does so so the average Venezuelan for the most part is just stuck with bolivars, watching their money burn effectively. Uh, yeah, or you also have the option of an incredibly 
problematic and, and always dysfunctional property market. Like go, go try to buy and sell a property in Venezuela or a house or, or sorry, or a car it, it, or a company. It's a disaster. Yeah. And so what were the biggest challenges and opportunities with mining when you first got started? And, you know, what was crypto mining in Venezuela like? Why did the government actually create subsidies for, for mining? Was it a competitive industry? Does it continue to be? No, it's a great question. So at first, mining in Venezuela started out as a, as a hobby from the, the, of, the, of the sort of either A, very wealthy or B, very technically inclined uh, people. So there were there were two types of miners in the early days. One, the guys that lived in Caracas that had spent their entire lives on Reddit and they were pro- computer programmers and you know they were building up their GPU rigs yep. and they were mining that way. And then the others were, uh, you know, Venezuelans that had or either traveled or studied abroad, uh, you know, heard about Bitcoin in some way. Uh, obviously, no no content in Spanish was being produced that time, so you had to have been uh, either English speaking or or educated in that way. Yep. And uh, and essentially, once you found out about it, if you were able to essentially, if you had the capital to go buy ASICs, then you were by Venezuelan terms relatively quite wealthy. So uh, those were the two sort of main people that started mining. From there, it it became ubiquitous like it 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 got to a point where so to give you a story when we set up our first facility the guys that set up all the electrical work were usually were electricians there were people that you know worked in construction they were contractors and we'd been working with them for many years my dad has a had a real estate uh you know contracting firm so the first people that set up our electrical work were the electricians that we had worked with for a while first time they go oh what's this for it's like oh it's for these machines you know, that mine Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. Second facility, like, oh, this is interesting. It must be going well. Like, you know, what, what's this Bitcoin thing do? And like, where can we learn more about this Bitcoin thing? And like, how do you, where, where do they go after you mine them? Like, what do they do? What do they, what do they look like? And by the third installation, they're like, here's my wallet. I want to get paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> and so it started out as very much something that only a few people had access to, but when when other people in society start seeing other members of that same society do well because they're you know either mining bitcoin or holding bitcoin or talking about bitcoin they're going to go and try to mimic that very quickly and this and, was in oh, what about 2014 this is probably no i would say this was like late 2015 early 2016 okay and and i i assume so so you know, what, if any, Venezuelan mining economy, I guess, still exists? Because one of the biggest challenges with mining now is just you need such scale, right? You need to be able to own a, a tremendous amount of mining equipment, you need to have access to a large amount of low-cost power. And, you know, you see the videos and pictures of electricity shutting off in Venezuela and, you know, uh, you know, people really suffering. Is, is there still a mining industry? Did, did, it, did it stop? Why? And, you know, and if it did, why did it stop? Um, that's a, that's a bit of a loaded question. I think it's important that, that we touch on a few things because there's, I think, a huge misconception on countries like Iran and Venezuela and mining. The first philosophy or, or fallacy is that people think that there is an excess of power in Venezuela and that that's why it's subsidized. There isn't. 
Venezuela actually has chronic blackout issues. They, uh, my city where my parents still live, uh, goes through ro daily rolling blackouts, five to six hour long. Uh, my aunt, who was just in the hospital, uh, endured blackouts while at the hospital, uh, several of them. Um, there is no excess power in Venezuela. There is actually a shortage of power in Venezuela, uh, a massive shortage of power in Venezuela. Why did this opportunity exist in the first place? Um, a, because the government subsidizes power, not because it likes industry. Uh, it does it so that it maintains the popular vote. Uh, Venezuela is a country that has been plagued by subsidies. And the tricky thing about subsidies is that no politician has the will to remove them. So the uh, other thing to keep in mind, Venezuela has the largest gasoline subsidy in the planet. Uh, it's not just electricity that's subsidized. Water I subsidized. Mean, yeah, isn't, isn't gas in Venezuela like four or five cents a gallon? Basically the equivalent? Less of than that. Yeah. Less than that. Uh, I would. I, I told my guys, like I told my friends back in the Tehran University, to fill up a hundred liter tank of gas in Venezuela. I had, and this is in twenty. I don't know. Last time I was there it was like, what was it? Twenty seventeen, twenty sixteen. I would have had to break a penny in four to pay with a fourth of a penny for hundred liters of gas. So I guess to to bring this back, this uh, the subsidy was never intended for mining. The subsidy okay. was intended to keep. Uh, voters receiving free things and, and, and being, being sold this illusion. But the, the blackout did not impact people that were receiving the subsidy. Like the hospital would have a blackout, but you, but, but your mining facility wouldn't, or it, it still would. No. So everybody would get uh, equally blacked out. So okay. like it, it, it would, whether you were a hospital, whether you were a minor, the only people that wouldn't get blacked out were the neighborhoods where the government officials live. Uh, or where they hold their Bitcoin mines. Those never get blackouts. The, the main thing is that uh, most Venezuelans aren't aware of Bitcoin mining. <laughs> they're, they're not aware of who's, who's taking advantage of this, right? Uh, and, and, and what the government does every time there's a, a blackout or there is, I don't know if you saw the recent news, but just a very unfortunate news to bring up right now, but Venezuelans are dying, uh, uh, drowning on boats trying to reach Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, right now. Their government's official response is that it is the political opposition's fault. I, I don't know how that makes sense, but that's what they do. And what they do also with these blackouts and inflation and all the other things that are bad for society is they say it's the U.S.'s fault. It's the, uh, em the empire, the U.S. empire's fault. It is the capitalist pigs is fault uh it, it's uh and and that's essentially how they sounds, manage that sounds narrative. a bit like north korea uh, very much yeah very much it's 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 not no different and so you know you eventually decided to leave uh venezuela and mining with your brother and, and you returned back to canada and i think you mentioned to me that you initially kind of thought about mining in, in canada but decided that that wasn't the right opportunity and you decided to start this company let in so can you kind of talk us through very quickly how you fell down that path and and what is let in yeah of course so you know as i've said you know a couple of things uh 
I've, I've learned a lot of a lot about Bitcoin about how people were using Bitcoin through this mining journey. Uh, I, I I remember distinctly that Venezuelans were very excited about earning their Bitcoin. They were not excited about spending their Bitcoin because, uh, and I remember distinctly, this happened to a few miners when when I was helping them in their facilities was because the time between when you set the Bitcoin and you receive the machines was so long, the opportunity cost of the machines, uh, the opportunity cost of letting go of the Bitcoin to buy the machines and waiting those six months was often more than the cost of the machines themselves. <laughs> and miners were very frustrated because, you know, they were just, they would all keep going back to if I had just been able to hold on to that Bitcoin, like if I had just been able to hold on to that Bitcoin. Uh, Similarly, like people that were starting to save in Bitcoin or, you know, uh, accumulate their Bitcoin because they wanted to leave the country or they wanted to do something with it because it is your highest and best asset. Anytime you had a need or you needed medicine or you needed this, it, you just, it, it went to the chopping block. So like these, these, I, these lessons stuck with me and I'm mentioning this for a reason. The other thing that stuck with me was while in Venezuela going through inflation, one thing that worked really, really well for me was shorting the Bolivar. And this, I, how are you able to do that? Exactly. That sounds very <laughs> sophisticated, but it's not. And I'll tell you why. A short is basically an unsecured borrow to hold a, a harder asset, right? So all you need to do is get someone to lend you Bolivares. And you then get rid of those Bolivares for a hard asset. And you will then, at a future at a future point, convert a fraction of that hard asset to repay your Bolivar debt. That's that's essentially shorting the Bolivar. So how did you do that? Well, you have credit cards, you have bank loans, uh, so you just rack them all up uh, until as much as you can, buy dollars with it, or buy a Bitcoin with it, or buy a hard asset with it, and let inflation do its thing. Two months later, you convert a fraction of that hard asset, pay back the entire fiat amount, take out the whole thing again. So that that's essentially what a short is. So I there were two things that I I there were like they were already like swimming around my head, which was okay, people don't want to sell their Bitcoin. Using a hard asset to borrow a weaker depreciating asset is like is, is oftentimes a great business decision. So okay, there's an opportunity here. So then I came to Canada. The other the other hurtful thing was that as a Venezuelan, you know, if you want to build a company that is going to help Venezuelans, the irony is that many, the, the best place to build that company is outside of Venezuela. Uh, and, and that is very painful, but that is a reality. And um, when I came to Canada, I was obsessed with, with Bitcoin. I wanted to do Bitcoin full time. I was basically, uh, you know, I reduced my hours on my initial job to have to, to part time because I was just like, I really wanted to get into this. I was going to all these conferences and uh, Vitalik and Ethan were still talking about Ethereum at UFT at the time. So you could still, still go and like literally talk to them. And it was, to me, it was just fascinating what was happening. So Adam and I, uh, so I didn't have an energy subsidy in Canada, but I had an energy friend. Uh, my friend, Adam, who is co-founder of Aladdin, he had spent the last 10 years financing renewable energy projects at, uh, at a large uh, REIT here in Canada. So he, he, I'd start you know, telling him about what I want to do and get him excited about Bitcoin. And he says, you know, we have, Canada has the cheapest energy in the free world. You know, what, it's just in Quebec. So 
we decided that we would go and scope out a site and build out. And this, this was mainly hydropower? Or? Yes. In Quebec? Quebec is like 99% hydro. It's actually one of the cleanest uh, uh, energy producers in the world, which is pretty fascinating. And when we went there, we, we said, okay, we're going to build out this, this mine facility. And we built out a small mine to essentially uh, uh, showcase to our investors that we wanted to build a much larger mine in, in Quebec. So as we were in the process of building this mine, Adam and I are already thinking about, oh man, like it would be great if we could just get a loan uh, to buy these machines and not have to sell our Bitcoin to buy these machines. And we asked around, a couple of people told us we were crazy. Like, you know, most people back then, uh, you would approach to try to get a Bitcoin back loan. We saw the offers that were in the market. And at the time, I believe the only person doing this was Salt. And when we looked at the model, we... We didn't like it because it forced you to use a token, uh, and and we came from structured finance, so we saw we saw an opportunity to do this without the token, uh, just from a, from a much more clean, much more transparent uh, way of operating, and just make it less make it much easier to use. Like much and, more. And so, why do you think they they had the token? Is it just because they used the token to raise a ton of money, and they needed to have some way of accruing value to the token that they were now sitting on a a ton of as well. That would be my cynical view. Um, I think a lot of C, a lot of ICOs uh, did just that. Uh, you know, I, I think if you look at, I think that's the utility token model generally, right? This, this, yeah, or as I like but, to call it, the Chuck E. Cheese token model. No, <laughs> and that's a, that's that, that may be a, a a fair way to to to, to you know uh, describe them, but I think. If you look at the other platforms in our space, like, you know, where's BitGo's token? Like, where, where's Coinbase's token? Where's Kraken's token? Like, where's Bitstamp's token? Like, you, you, you didn't need a token to build a world-class platform. Uh, and so we, you know, and but we you, didn't... But, we, but, 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 but I think, you know, to, to the contrary, you know, there were big ICOs, and I'm sure we'll go into this, like Celsius Network, where they raised $50 million dollars. Uh, for a token and and significant use that to significantly, you know, fund their company. I mean, I was just joking on Twitter yesterday about this ICO Tata Two. I don't know if you remember it. They were trying to build a, a Netflix, uh, a Netflix equivalent. They raised five hundred and seventy-five million, of which a hundred million came from like the Bacardi Harris, and uh, they currently have zero videos on their website, uh, zero movies, zero licenses to movies. They did have movies, uh, but I, I was looking a few months ago and I, I went back to the web archive and they had not snakes on a plane. You probably remember snakes on a plane. They had snakes on a train on their uh, on their website and Abraham Lincoln versus zombies and all this other sort of garbage. And you know, this company raised $575 million, right? So I think, you know, certainly there are lots of companies like BitGo, like Coinbase, which have been incredibly successful, uh, but that's on the back of, you know, obviously fundraising, but also performance as well. And I think, you know, with the ICO model allowed a lot of people in 2017, 2018 to do is raise a tremendous amount of money with nothing, uh, with an idea, with no past history of execution or anything else, just in a, you know an idea, generally speaking. No, oh, how, how did that end up? <laughs> I don't no, know. That, that, I thought it was as ridiculous <laughs> back then as I still think it is today. And you know, you know, P, yeah. you know, I think I think your 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 the answer to how did it end up is greed. Yeah, well, and, and that's fair. Like you know. In, in the case of Salt, like the, the SEC made their made their uh, stance very clear. That was a little uh, slap on the wrist there with Salt. 
Yeah. And, and I think, you know, if, if you look at what's coming out of the U S like DOJ going after BitMEX, like they're, they're definitely saying not in my turf. Uh, and I, I think people underestimate regulators' ability to regulate. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, for example, like I say this, you know, I, I, I don't love this, but like, I grew up in a place like Venezuela, like in Venezuela, like you, you, when you, when you grew up in a place like that, I think is what I, what that left me with is when the government wants to get you, they'll get you like it, it doesn't really matter what you do, where you encrypt your things, where you hide. Like well, I think, I think to your point, a lot of people in crypto think they're safe just because the government hasn't gone after them yet. And it, it, a lot of cases, it probably just means you're just, you're somewhere down that to-do list. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think at the point of BitMEX, like you brought up earlier, you know, you know, when, 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 uh, you know, uh, um, why am I blanking on his name? Hayes, Arthur Hayes, you know, goes out and says you can, you can, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to, to bribe a a, a, a a government official with a, a coconut or whatever in whichever country they decide the Seychelles or wherever they were incorporated. I mean, and, and to mock the SEC, and I, I see others on on Twitter mocking the SEC. I just, I have to imagine that's not the best idea. Well, it, that that's certainly not at all like w- the 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 path that we think is the correct path. Like uh, as far as uh, <laughs> you don't think mocking regulators is a good idea? <laughs> not at all. Uh, but but because and I and, you know I think there's uh, you know again I I, I don't want to take too much heat for this, but like there's this there's this bit of us and them mentality around crypto between government or regulators and crypto participants or just people in general i i think that's a that's a that's a dangerous uh i concur a hundred percent i can misconception 100%. it needs to be us and them i think you know the reason that wyoming for example has been such a beacon for crypto regulation is because you know you know caitlin long you know you know took a you know put on her cowboy hat and uh, you know, worked alongside regulators, right? And I think yeah. regulators are, are humans. We have, I'm sure. Look, you probably know, you know, friends from school that work for the government, right? And the Canadian government. And regulators mm-hmm. are just people. And you know, people are, you know, re- the, the reason that you do business with anybody, the reason that you build business, is because you build relationships, right? People are relate. That's how we treat our customers. Their relationships first, customers second. And, and, you know, it should be the same thing with, with regulators. Obviously, they're not customers, but there should be relationships first. And, and you know, government exists to protect, to protect us, to protect consumers, right? And I think, to, to your point, it's totally, totally missed. Uh, and, yeah. and we need to be working alongside regulators to craft regulation that, you know, is good for us, obviously, as business people and, and yourself and I, but, but also good for the consumer, right? We don't, I don't think either of us want our customers to be impacted. 100% and that I think is the the absolute intent of, re- of what, what that should be the absolute intent of regulation is just to, to make sure that there are rules set so that nobody can take advantage of of anybody that may not have the means to protect themselves like that that should be the intent and fully agree with this you know we are all the same team uh part like we may we may differ on political view of a particular issue or we may differ about something else but at the end of the day we are in the same village. Like we, the, the, this idea, and, and I'll, I'll just share briefly of the Venezuela example. I remember growing up and when Chavez started going into power, uh, this concept of even being a politician, 
right? And, and, and so when you talk around your friends and you talk about politicians, you talk about politicians as they as if they are these like, you know, oh, that's, you know, you're too good for that. Like, don't worry, let someone else be a politician. Like, it's just, it's just not for you. Like, it's, you know, politicians are, are just, they're weird people. Like, don't, you know, and, and also there's this other thought, especially in Venezuela, when you start doing that enough times, eventually you're like, politicians are just idiots, right? Like, I don't want to go be an idiot. Like, let's just let politicians be idiots. Your country will actually get run by these idiots, the laws of your country will get passed by these idiots. And what you will have if you don't act is a country of idiots. And that's effectively what happened in Venezuela. Like it was always said or not said, but it was like, oh, don't worry. Like, you know, it's not for you. You know, you can help in other ways. Like when you help go do some, you know, financial contribution or blah, blah, blah. Just like, don't get into that because it's a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. <laughs> like we should all vote. We should all be aware of our legislations. Like we should all be, but it takes, it takes a, a particular set of life lessons to get you there. Um, most people just feel so alienated that, and, and they don't really see the impact. Like uh, to me, it's very clear because I saw the country literally go into ruins because of bad decisions. Now it's an extreme case. I'm not suggesting that that's what's going to happen in Canada or the US, but it, it is what it leads to. Like if you just progressively let less and less qualified people run the country. And so let's let's bring this back to the the conversation. You know, I, I, I brought us off a bit on a tangent here on the salt lending, you know, ICO and, and fundraising. But so, you know, you, you decided that that lending was kind of the right opportunity. And so can you kind of talk us through, you know, you started Len and, you know, what, what, when you initially started it, what co- customers did you look to service and, and what problems did you, did you try to solve for these, those customers? And, and also how has that changed since you first started the firm? No, yeah, great question. So as I mentioned, the, the first uh, problem we wanted to solve was this concept of not being able to finance your Bitcoin. So th- this idea that, the only way to spend your Bitcoin was to just get rid of it. Uh, we thought that Bitcoin was an incredible asset to lend against. Uh, we, we thought it's just incredible attributes. It traded 24-7. It had deep liquidity, infinitely divisible, much easier to finance than a car or a mortgage. Like if somebody defaults on a house, you can't sell a room of it or a door, right? But with Bitcoin, you could basically infinitely divide it. And the most interesting thing about it was that a Venezuelan Bitcoin was the same as a Canadian Bitcoin, was the same as a Brazilian Bitcoin. It was actually a globally scalable lending asset. So what you're saying is one BTC equals one BTC? <laughs> yes. Uh, I've, had, I've had actually people come back to me with one BTC in Canada. It doesn't cost the same as one BTC in Venezuela. I'm like, okay, semantics here. But, uh, but yeah, so we saw in Bitcoin the world's almost, not almost, like the world's greatest collateral. Like, Prior to Bitcoin, if somebody in Venezuela wanted to get a loan from somebody in Canada, there was no asset that the Canadian lender could take security of. None. Like, they would take as collateral. Bitcoin changed that dramatically. So we first saw an opportunity to, to A, uh, support miners in Canada, because we were miners. We knew that problem really, really well. We knew the pain points. We knew how hard it was. So our first clients were miners. 
essentially. Uh, and uh, actually, no, uh, that, that our first public client was uh, good friend Francis Puglio, who runs uh, bills and bull Bitcoin in Canada. He's a he's an active member of the Bitcoin community. And, very uh, outspoken member of the Bitcoin community as well. Very outspoken member of the Bitcoin community. So when when I we told him Adam and I mentioned we were building this business, he he became obsessed. He's like, I want to be the first Bitcoin back loan in Canada, and like what, I want you to guys to issue me the first Bitcoin back loan in Canada, and and, and so we did, uh, and so that was our first loan ever. That story got covered by the block, and uh, it basically you know let people know that we were around and that we were in Canada and that this is what we did in September, 2018, we closed our first seed round. So I was, uh, you know, we closed one and a half million dollars to do our first loans and, and put the team together. So we, we closed the seed round in September. We processed the first loan in November of 2018. Uh, even at that time, we still didn't have our tech platform. Like it hadn't been fully built out. We had all the legal agreements and everything. Yep. Uh, but then we launched the platform uh, early 2019. Yep. And people started taking loans. So how, uh, are you, how are you managing your loans initially? Were you like on an Excel spreadsheet or something like that? Or how are you keeping track of them? No. So we brought in, uh, so to, to form the team, we brought our CTO, Mina, who's he's an amazing person. He was at the Royal Bank of Canada. And so the, the other very interesting thing about this, this about Lenin is how we came together. So Adam and I were very good friends uh, from university. I... I had a, I, I know I had been working with the Bitcoin community for a while, so I understood the problem we were trying to solve, and I knew a lot of people in the community that would could be our clients. And so, basically, I would deal with like the the go to market and and sales strategy. Adam had been lending with institutions and 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 essentially, uh, you know, Canadian financial institutions. He had been uh, financing solar projects, so he knew debt agreements inside and out. Uh, he basically knew the terms. He knew a lot of people in the financing space. And another good friend of ours, Ken, uh, had been working uh, in a mortgage fund. So he was, he was basically a lawyer by trade and uh, a securities lawyer. So between Adam's lending experience, Ken's security, Mina CTO, and then another friend, uh, Carlos, joined us to do uh, chief compliance and controls. And he came from the Bank of Montreal. And so when this team kind of got behind what we wanted to build, it was just reinforcing. It was very reinforcing each time. And so when we did our first loan, we had all our I's dotted and our T's crossed. Like we, we are, you know, we're FitTrack registered, you know, transparent Canadian company. We, we went pretty much the polar opposite of an ICO. Uh, we wanted to be Im- immediately reachable. We wanted people to know exactly who we were, where we were, who was funding us, uh, basically everything. Yeah, no. I look. I think you made the right decision there, as as I'm sure you you, you think as well. Um, so, you know, what are the main differences uh, between what you guys are doing and and other lending platforms, both you know decentralized like a Celsius or a Salt, uh, and and centralized like BlockFi, uh, and, and what are the differences between the solutions that you're offering and what they're offering, and you know why why do and should customers choose Lending over those other solutions? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So. Um, a couple of things that we do differently from, uh, I would say, first off, let's let's try to separate the like like I think let's try to segment out the industry a little bit just so that people can can per- perceive the differences between the platforms a bit better. So 
Yeah, let's also throw in, might as well, while we're while there, let's throw in Genesis and, you know, yeah. more of the institutional part of lending as well. Yeah, perfect. So first off, you have, you have several, you have different types of players in the lending space. So the, the, let's talk first about the institutional space. And Genesis is a good example. So Genesis is the largest institutional counterparty in the industry, uh, billions of dollars under management and, and active loans. They do not service individual clients. So if you would like to, to do business with Genesis, you need to be in the order of you know, two and a half million dollars, I believe is their minimum ticket size or somewhere close to the million. Uh, so, and even then you, you have to go through some process to get onboarded and they may, they may not, they may not deal with you because that's just not their, uh, focus. Their focus is to deal with other institutions. I think they, they are very vocal about, you know, they only deal with 61 institutions, I believe is what they claim. So, uh, that's one. And those are, that's a great counterparty, but it's not accessible to the majority of the world. Uh, then, uh, you get into the more DeFi projects like for example uh, Ave compound uh, etc right we are different in many ways from those projects uh, main one being is we are not a smart contract uh, you cannot do an economic exploit on Ledin through oracles uh, you know like like happened recently on com where they drain 100 million from the pool uh, we are a, a centralized entity we don't have a token so to access our services, we don't ask you to buy anything or stake anything in addition to the assets that you want to hold. Uh, so that is uh, the, the, how we're different from uh, DeFi. The other thing is we have customer support in three languages. So uh, we have customer support. I, don't, I, I believe smart contracts would have a hard time providing customer support. Uh, so we have legal agreements translated in all your languages. Uh, and that's a good segue into what we and, do different. So, yeah. So what languages? I assume English, Spanish, and what's the third? Portuguese. Portuguese. Yeah. Uh, and so, and that's a good segue into what we do different than our other centralized lenders. So uh, let's you know use BlockFi for example, uh, and even Celsius. So uh, actually, Celsius has a token. So perhaps BlockFi is a better example. Uh, uh, Celsius is a mix. They're 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 yeah. Kind of so. The uh, what we do different from a company say, like, like say BlockFi is our um, our go to market is quite different. Our market focus is quite different. Our product offerings are somewhat different. So uh, first off, product offering we we wanted let it to be an, a global company, an international company. We didn't want to build more financial services for wealthy North Americans or Europeans. Like not we love them, but we want to have them. But we, we there's you no reason why. <laughs> yeah, there, there's no there's no reason why that product shouldn't be able to be accessed by everyone else. Yep. Uh, and so what we did is we wanted to build products that were accessible and wouldn't have so much friction worldwide. I know that sounds like a bit like steep, but I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. Minimum loan size at Blockfire, I believe, is 10K. Uh, they might have brought it down to 5K. Minimum loan size at Lenin is $500. Uh if you ask anyone south of Texas uh, to basically give you $20,000 worth of Bitcoin to test out a loan, uh, that, that's probably you know, a very wealthy person in Mexico. <laughs> uh, and so we, we, when we were developing this product, uh, we wanted to build it so that it was way more accessible uh, to Bitcoiners around the world. So uh, there's a lot of things you have to do to make that happen. There's a lot of things you have to do very efficiently on the back end to be able to make money 
on a $500 loan that you're charging 14% on. So, uh, but we did that at the beginning because we thought that that was the, the right long-term approach uh, so, so that we could grow this business and compete uh, when, when in these markets. The other piece that we do differently, which again, sounds trivial, but it's 2020 and Lenin is still the only lending company that has the services available in Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, again, that sounds trivial, but... Hopefully not, none of your competitors are listening because that seems like a, uh, you know, a, a relatively trivial problem to solve. But it totally makes sense. If you are a customer in Latin America, you prefer to do business in Spanish, just like I, a customer in North America, don't want to have Google Translate on on my computer to, 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 to you know, get a loan from Korea. I'd rather deal with a company in the US. So I get that. Totally get it. It's, but it's not a trivial problem. <laughs> uh, like to, to do it properly... It's it's very far from trivial. Yeah, from uh, contracts to everything. Yeah, and so it, it, it. But when you do it from day one, and you make a part of your processes, it's easier to maintain. Right. So uh, that is is something that we're very proud of. Uh, hey, and by the way, I would love for people to start offering more services in Spanish and Portuguese. That's the whole point. <laughs> like, I, I would love for people down there to have more options in competition. That would be incredible. Uh, because it makes it means that they they're they're getting better like things are getting better for them so I, I by no means like you know I, I welcome it and uh, and so the other piece um, is our products so our products themselves are a bit differently are, are a bit different so we have B2X which is uh, a, a very popular product today uh, basically what we saw when we launched the loan at first was that the um, People were basically using the Bitcoin back loans to buy more Bitcoin and bring the Bitcoin back to Lenin to take another Bitcoin back loan to buy more Bitcoin. So they were doing like this inceptuous cycle until they hit the minimum loan amount. And so what we did is said, okay, what, well, let's just build a product that does exactly this in one step. It's like, you know, you click here, you take a loan for the dollar amount equivalent to what Bitcoin you own. We buy an equal amount of Bitcoin. You double your Bitcoin amount and you, you know, through a Lenin Bitcoin back loan. And we basically custody those Bitcoin until you repay the loan. So that is uh, essentially B2X. Uh, it's you know very popular loan product today. The other thing that we do differently is we don't have tiers. So, so is that kind of just like buying Bitcoin on margin in a way? It's very similar. Yes. So it's it's you can use yeah it's just using a Bitcoin back loan to buy more Bitcoin. So yeah. it's uh, it's a similar uh, value proposition. Uh, and then the other piece is that we have no tiers. Uh, everybody earns the same rate regardless of the amount. Uh, and so we, uh, you know, we want to stay away from kind of segmenting clients that way. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, what I see with a lot of the other lending platforms is like, hey, you know, your first Bitcoin, you earn X percent, but then after that, it drops significantly as well. Yeah. So, you know, everybody has their sort of optimizations that they're, they're trying to optimize for the type of client. It seems like a CAC, a CAC, you know, thing for a lot of these larger lending platforms that are looking for big ticket clients, right? You know, eat, eat a couple percent on the initial Bitcoin and then, you know, you know, you make your margin on, on the additional deposits. Well, but I would, this, I would actually argue as a big ticket client that I'm getting treated less fairly than the smaller client. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. I think, I think that, you know, and like if you want to put a, you know, let's say five Bitcoin into, into, into one of these platforms, right. You know, you know, yeah, like I think the initial 6.2% or 6% or 7% or whatever these different platforms charge uh, for, you know, uh, you know, USD interest on, on, uh, or sorry, in, in kind BTC interest on a Bitcoin loan. 
I think is what attracts them. But I think that they, they, I would have to assume the margins are very, very tight on that. Uh, and that, you know, they're, that, that's just a, a cost of doing business for these guys. You know, the, the, the rates in the market right now support, uh, I think, the, some of the, the headline rates that you're seeing in some of these yep. lending platforms. Uh, so I think it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a matter of what you're trying to optimize for, you know, and who you're trying to create that great client experience for. Uh, so, you know, in our view, we'd like to keep everything as streamlined as possible. We, we like to keep essentially everybody earning the same rate. Uh, we like to, we like to basically keep our rates steady as for the longest time as possible. Um, and, and so we just try to make things <laughs> frankly, somewhat boring, but boring in finance is, is pretty good as long as you're getting the best interest rate. And so one, one, you know, thing that I always assume is a, is a, is a problem for lent, you know, companies that are, that are offering loans is the fact that you need to, you know, a lot of these lending platforms just let customers withdraw their deposits relatively frequently. And so you always kind of need to have, you know, Bitcoin on hand that you're not earning interest in. Uh, that you're not earning interest on, right? So you kind of have that risk of, you know, hey, I always need to hold some amount of Bitcoin. I think you guys are partnered with with Genesis, if I'm not mistaken. Is is the partnership there so that you guys can access Bitcoin in the overnight market if you need it? Like, like what? How do you leverage that partnership or those just disconnected ideas? No, no. So we work. So like to your point, yes. So we do have, uh, we do have to manage essentially small floats to process withdrawals in a timely fashion. Yep. But what we do on the back end is that we structure essentially all of our floats uh, very uh, efficiently so that pretty much the large majority of, of the float is earning interest. And so, it, and we will always have enough uh, assets at hand to essentially fulfill all the withdrawals, if even if, for example, so like all of our all of our loans on the outside are structured so that even if everybody wanted to come and withdraw all of their Bitcoin, uh, you know, on the same day, we would have enough time to unwind all of our institutional loans, basically collect all that Bitcoin and return all that Bitcoin back out to, to our clients. So we do have a small flow that we manage, but all of our T's and C's are aligned so that we can satisfy any sort of massive withdrawal request. Got it. Yeah. So run on the Bitcoin bank. So, you know. <laughs> no, and that's the thing. Like we are, um, it's, it's interesting. Like people are, are essentially acknowledging or starting to understand the kind of market function that a company is like Gladden will fulfill. And the thing that I think is, is very interesting is that because everything is so much more transparent in Bitcoin and because we're having an opportunity to rebuild this entire system from ground up, the checks and balances that are required from us, I think from a transparency standpoint, uh, need to be better than, than what's already out there. So that is very much what we're trying to do is we, we would like to re like represent these financial services with all the transparency that Bitcoin allows. Uh, so that, I think that's the the goal or that should be the goal. And so, so let's kind of run through these, these, these next questions a little, little quick. Let's, let's, let's try to go speed around a bit. Cause uh, sure. I've, uh, I've been, I've been, I've been roaming around a lot of different questions. So first thing is what are your thoughts on, on, on DeFi lending 
Um, and, and what do you think of things like the recent Nexus Mutual hack, which is, you know, the, the, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, one of the founders of Nexus Mutual uh, had their MetaMask account drained and their share of NXM tokens uh, drained and the price of, of Nexus dropped by about 13%. Uh, you know, following that hack. So it wasn't actually a hack of Nexus Mutual itself, uh, but it was an exploit of, um, you know, I, it was either his hardware wallet or somehow that that coincided with with MetaMask and, and you know, the hacker getting exposure to the MetaMask. So, you know, kind of back to the question, though, what are your thoughts on DeFi lending and the risks associated with them? You know, what do you, what do you kind of see as the risk, you know, reward trade-off that exists within that space? Yeah, so DeFi, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, so it's a, there's a lot of facets to DeFi, but I think the the main risks to me are, you know, one it's it's all smart contract based and it's it's very untested, like it's very recent, and I think it, it'll be difficult for institutional players to get comfortable with it uh, because of just the the sheer amount of risks that that are there. The where I see kind of DeFi. Is is evolving into where the P2P market of lending is today. Like it, it, it does have a small part in the in the market, but relatively speaking, it's very small because it's that coincidence of of wants that is very hard to fulfill on a P2P basis. And so, you know, one use case that I think you and I are both very very passionate about uh, is stable coins and their use in remittances. Uh, the reason that I'm personally passionate about it is I'm not sure if, if I brought this up to you last time we spoke, but I spent some time growing up in Hong Kong. And one of the things that I saw were, you know, uh, domestic workers in Hong Kong, they needed to send money back to the Philippines and they would need to physically go to a location. I mean, now they can, you know, now they can do it more on their phone, but, but globally the average cost of remittances is I believe about 9% at a bank or at a post office. And so for me, I view stable coins as an incredible use case because you can send money effectively at, 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 at almost zero cost, you know, well, Ethereum gas fees are, are high now, but, you know, you know, assuming that we can get a low cost scalable network, um, you know, for stable coins, you can, you can send them at almost low, low, at almost no cost. And you can also send a, you know, an advanced economy collateralized currency back, back to, to someone in a developing country, which they can then convert when they need it without having to deal with inflation. So, you know, what, what about stable remittances specifically? Has you excited or are they similar things? And, you know, what problems can they specifically solve for uh, Latin America? Yeah, no, great question. So I think to your point, uh, remittances, uh, for the people in the remittance world, uh, uh, they have very much not been... Uh, there's a, there's a large part of the world economy that does not have access to, to online banking and the digital value of sending and receiving digital value. That, that is as, as strange as perhaps digital data was 15 years ago, like the ability of being able to download a song on your phone uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, like it's just limited to a very secluded number of people. So um, I think stable coins have an ability to basically let people all over the world store dollars digitally and access financial services digitally. Uh, to put things in perspective, if you're a Venezuelan that gets paid a $100 bill, you still can't do anything with those $100. You still can't send it. You still can't earn interest. You still can't basically do anything other than spending that bill, right? You, you can't mail it. So that is a massive barrier. 
So I think what what allows what what stablecoins allow is the digitization of the dollar, and allowing people to send and receive these digital dollars, but not only just send and receive them. Imagine how powerful it is for the house uh, or employee that was or domestic employee that was in Hong Kong when they send those dollars back to the Philippines, that it arrives at a savings account and that it's immediately earning interest. And that if that person wants to spend it, they can spend it on their phone, on the tap. Like they don't have to go to Western Union, collect the cash, go to the... So they will be able to pay online, which you can't do with cash, and send and receive money online and earn interest. Like those things are, are what get me excited about stable coins because I do think the world... It, to a large extent, not the world, but many economies in the world will look to proxy dollarize. Uh, and, and the easier we can do that for the citizens in those economies, the better they will be. And so last time we spoke, um, you know, this was right after the USDC uh, airdrop was announced in Venezuela. And that's the thing that has you very excited. Can you kind of speak to us about why, why you're so excited about that, that and, and the prospect of this? Yes, uh, for sure. So Venezuela is a sanctioned country. Uh, not not country, sorry. Venezuela is not a sanctioned country. There are many entities within Venezuela that are sanctioned. So uh, in Venezuela, as a, as a user of financial services, especially companies that are, you know, or, you know, are registered abroad, et cetera, you always have this lingering fear that your account may be shut down, right? Because many Venezuelans have got an email saying, hey, we saw you're Venezuela. Sorry, your Wells Fargo bank account is getting shut down. Here's your check. Uh, same Bank of America, like same. And so Venezuelans are always like nervous about them, you know, being onside or offside or like, even though they're completely legal and onside, the bank just doesn't want to take the risk sometimes. And they'll just shut down their accounts. Uh, broadly speaking, like they'll shut down the whole country, like PayPal has come out of the country. Uh, I forget who the other one is like. I, I, anyway, there's, there's like big names that have just up and left. Uh, and so Venezuelans always have this fear. And in a similar fashion, there was there, nobody had come out and said, it's okay for Venezuelans to use USDC. Like, it's okay for you guys to hold them and transact in them. Like, that, that had not been said by, by anybody, right? What happened three weeks ago was that, in, in essence, the, the government of the United States uh, basically told Juan Guaido, the, the encircle, the, the president of Venezuela, that they will be sending the, the dollars that they have confiscated from Maduro. The, the, the U.S. government has confiscated dollars from the criminal crooks that are at the helm. But they don't want to, and they want to give it back to the Venezuelan people, but they don't want to give it back through Maduro. So what they've done is they told Guaido that they're going to send these $18 million to Venezuelans in the USDC format. So why does that have me very excited? Well, A, in a way, the government is the government of the United States is saying it's okay for you to send USDC to these Venezuelans. That that is huge in itself, uh, massive. The other piece is that this is the first time that much money has been and and not in a token or crappy this or crappy that like dollars have been actually airdropped to a large number of people in Venezuela, sixty one thousand two hundred to be precise. When this happens. And when this happens successfully, what this opens the door for is for Venezuelans to start transacting within themselves in USDC. So what does this do? 
A, this opens a world of opportunity to them, but B, this chokes the government because it chokes their ability to keep track of the financial system tax transactions. And so it further removes resources from the government. So that's the, from the dictatorship. It empowers, it empowers the people of Venezuela. Yes. Yes. So that's why I'm excited. And, and also, you know, you know, obviously, you know, empowering the people of Venezuela is, is, is clearly more important, but I think it's also a very interesting potential fiat on-ramp or not fiat on-ramp, but on-ramp, sorry, into crypto. Um, and, and first experience for people into crypto and a way to, to make crypto more approachable to all, bring people into crypto, and then you know, also you know, potentially raise a, a generation that feels more native crypto, right? Where they see their parents getting airdropped USDC and that's normal and that's how you know, they're, they're used to receiving foreign aid as well. Yeah, no, 100%. And uh, I, I think it was Simon who, who mentioned this the other day, another friend of mine, but he said that Venezuela is going to be the first 51% plus crypto economy. And I, I agree with that. I think Venezuela has a great potential to do it. There is already a sort of shadow dollar economy in Venezuela that, that the government can't see. So it's really about the crypto economy eating up some of that shadow dollar economy. And, uh, and it's actually going to be easier and better for the people that are participating in those economies because this was on a blockchain at least. Like you can see things, you can see way more uh, about what a USDC coin is doing than you do a paper greenback. And so one question that we ask all of our guests, and I think in, in the context of this discussion would be, you know, you know, interesting to hear your, your, your thoughts, but how, how do you define fundamentals for crypto? And, and how do you find, I want to ignore every other token in the context of this conversation, but just for Bitcoin, you know, how do you define Bitcoin's fundamentals and, and how it derives value? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I, we do this weekly show called uh, the Econo- Bitcoin Economic Calendar. So what we do is essentially uh, when we were setting that the editor or like the editorial line for it, we, I asked myself this question. It's like, what, what are Bitcoin's fundamentals? Like, what should we be covering every week when, when we're talking about Bitcoin? And so to me, the fundamentals of Bitcoin are, are you, you can't talk about Bitcoin without talking about fiat. Right, because I, I think it's 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 an important part of why Bitcoin has this this allure is that it's better than fiat, right? So it, it, it's it, it's almost like you cannot think of Bitcoin's fundamentals uh, be, as being right without thinking about fiat fundamentals as being broken, right? So it's it's a bit of like two and the same. So when I think of Bitcoin fundamentals, I think of the network health. Right, I think of two things. I think of the health of the Bitcoin network from a hash rate standpoint, from a mining difficulty standpoint, from a mempool standpoint, like how clogged or not clogged and how are the difficulty adjustments being able to basically steer or clear the mempool. Uh, that's been working to perfection recently. Uh, I look at the essentially on-chain number of transactions. Uh, I look at... Uh, so that that's the sort of health of Bitcoin. So like transactional value, you know, the value of the network in fiat terms, etc. But then once you get past the the sort of core network attributes, then immediately you start going to okay, what is Bitcoin's volume? Like what? How much fiat has traded for Bitcoin? Uh, what is the price of Bitcoin in fiat and in different types of fiat? Right. So because 
that's the other thing. It's like we tend to look at Bitcoin prices in the U.S., but if you look at Bitcoin prices in Turkey, they are at far all-time highs, way plus 2017. If you look at Bitcoin in Japan, it's nowhere near the 2017 high. It's actually still, it has still ways to go. Uh, similar with the euro, because that, and that's where the euro, that's because the euro has gotten a bit stronger than the US dollar. So anyway, I look at Bitcoin's core fundamentals as the health of the Bitcoin network itself. And then to determine the health of the fiat fundamentals, I look at the sort of most prominent fiat, which is the US dollar. So in there, I look at, you know, where's, where's the uh, monetary supply? Where's monetary velocity? Where does the Fed want to take inflation? Where does the Fed want to take unemployment? Those are like the guiding principles of the Fed. Those gear their decisions. So that's kind of what I follow. And so what has you most excited about crypto? Or what worries you most about crypto in 2021? And what has you most excited? That's a great question. So I think as far as worry, um, I think the the it's not necessarily a worry because I think we as a community will overcome it. But I think there is a risk right now that there is a uh, potential risk to overregulate uh, the space out of the U.S. and maybe over, maybe do that in a way that's not very thoughtful. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm a, it's a bit concerning to see so much rumor out of the potential lot of the Treasury with no debate on the policy. I haven't seen any debates. I, I haven't seen any requests for industry input. Uh, so that's all very concerning to see that it's going to be basically dictated into B. And, and I think that may have some unintended consequences. So I think the, the main uh, risk, if I had to say one for 2020 would be, or 2021, would be uh, just potential over-regulation uh, and, and, and over-regulation in the context of a rising price. So it's going to be very tricky to basically see Bitcoin rising and, and people in the industry going to the lobby and saying, you know, you're killing Bitcoin. Right, <laughs> but Bitcoin rising because all these institutions are coming in. So I think we're getting set up for a, almost like a difficult narrative to, to help push that across. And so my last question is, if you weren't in finance, uh, what kind of job do you think you'd have today? That's a great question. I've been, I've always been pretty obsessed about, uh, like I'm very passionate about trying to help other people especially in Venezuela. Like I, I think one of the things I love about Latin and, and doing this is that I think that Bitcoin will help Venezuelans and through our company, we are helping many Venezuelans. So I would probably end up having ended up doing something in, in this sort of international remittance space, uh, having to do with figuring out a way of doing something similar to this, like trying to figure out a way or build the tool or work in a company that helps Venezuelans protect themselves or help people protect themselves from inflation. Cause like I always had this like burning anger against inflation, but I had never really uh, seen sort of a, a project that I could work towards that could help me sort of concretely fight against that. And I feel that Bitcoin just hits that in so many levels, you know? Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I loved this perspective um, and, you know, hearing from your experience growing up in Venezuela. And I think it's something that we're not talking about enough in the crypto community is just, you know, you know, the, the opportunities and the prospect to serve those that, that, that really, you know, that, that crypto actually has a use case for, right? Where it's not just a speculative asset, but it's also a, 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 a hedge against 
um, you know, their, their day-to-day life and something that helps them and that, you know, helps, you know, people in their day-to-day life. So thank you so much. Uh, before we, 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 I, I send you on your, uh, on your way for the rest of your day, so you just let everybody know where they can follow you. And I will post that, uh, in the comment section as well. Yeah, for sure. So you can follow me at Cryptonomista, at Cryptonomista on Twitter. So at Cryptonomist with an A in the end. Uh, our, our company is HODL with Ledin. So at HODL with Ledin. And you can check us out at Ledin.io. Uh, and also we do the Bitcoin economic calendar on YouTube. So if you want to uh, just Google Bitcoin economic calendar and you'll find our channel. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Josh.